have a copy of the Bible, you can go ahead and open it uh, to Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at about the first half of this chapter uh, this morning uh, here in just a few moments. But I want to say a special welcome to you if you're a guest with us, uh, especially if you live here locally in town. Uh, and if you don't have a church family or maybe you don't even know the Lord at all, uh, we're grateful that you're here with us and we'd love to get to know you better, uh, help you even potentially get connected with our church. If you could do us a favor to jumpstart that process, uh, to fill out a connection card either digitally uh, via that QR code or on the paper program that you received. Uh, if you do that, you can take it with you later in the morning uh, out into the lobby, take a left, and some folks will be there uh, who'd love to talk to you. But we'll follow up with you. But uh, we would uh, desire the privilege to get to know you better, to invest in you, help share uh, what the Lord is doing among us and what he can do in your life as well. Uh, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look through the first 16 verses or so of this chapter. Uh, and the beginning of the year, uh, Ben kind of alluded to this, but the beginning of a year, like what we've been living this last week, it provides us uh, each with a natural opportunity, if we want to take it, to try to make changes in our life, right? Uh, and some of us seize that, uh, try to capitalize on that. There's something about a blank calendar, uh, whether it's on paper or digitally or just in our minds, there's something about a blank calendar that inspires us to resolve to do something, to either start something we know we should be doing or to stop something we know uh, we shouldn't be doing. And some of you have made some of those uh, resolutions. Uh, but th the bigger the resolution is, the bigger thing we try to commit to, I would say the less likely we are to stick with it, all right? The, the bigger it is, the less likely it is we'll stick with it. Some of us maybe already this year, or we've lived this before, we've lost steam on that, res on that resolution, right? We've lost the resolve, we've lacked motivation, and we're realizing maybe my heart was never really in it. <laughs> I liked the idea of this thing, but I never really uh, wanted to pursue it. And this is such a common experience. This can hopefully be an encouragement to you that stopping resolutions is such a common experience. I learned this week that there's an actual day. It's this upcoming Friday. It's the second Friday of January uh, that in some people's uh, minds has come to to be known as Quitters Day. Quitters Day is this upcoming Friday. Uh, the June or June, January the 12th uh, is Quitters Day this year. It's a day where uh, many people, if they haven't yet, they by that second Friday, uh, they're losing steam. They just abandon their resolution on that second Friday because reality sets in with us, right? We, we give up. We don't want to keep trying to do this thing anymore. And so we, if it's physical exercise, we grab the bag of chips and we head back to the couch, right? We don't see that treadmill again until maybe next year. Uh, I mention that because this text we're going to look at, these first 16 verses of Genesis 4, I, in some ways I think you could think of as an original quitter's day. Uh, that we're going to see the story of this man, Cain, who it seems like he had been in some way trying to honor the Lord. He'd been trying to do some things that would bring honor to the Lord, but we're going to see on this dark day in human history, uh, even though he had tried to resist the tug of sin, we're going to see the day that he quit trying, the day that he gave in, the day that he uh, let his flesh take over, gave in to sin. Uh, and I, I want this text uh, to help us, though, not just be a story about Cain, but shine a light on ourselves, in our own life as well, to evaluate whether we are really any different. Uh, because we all have a war against sin. 
Uh, we all have a battle against it, and we need to evaluate, am I different, or am I just going to suffer the same fate as Cain? Is there something different in me, something different in my life that was not true in his, or am I just doomed to his same fate, doomed to his same failure? And spoiler alert, my answer would be, no, you are not. Uh, but I want to read these here in just a moment, Genesis 4, 1 through 16. But if you haven't been with us, I wanted to recap where we are in the story of Genesis and really of the Bible. Uh, we've committed to try this year, this school year, to go through Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, they're a distinct part of the book of Genesis. We're trying to go through that whole book. We've taken numerous months just to go through three chapters. It's been on purpose. So if you're calculating, trying to project out in your head, you may be thinking, this is going to take a while, longer than these guys think. Uh, we are going to pick up pace now. As we hit chapter 4, we're going to take bigger chunks, typically most Sundays. Uh, but what we have seen thus far, we've seen God speak the universe into existence, right? Remarkable, breathtaking to, to contemplate that, to hear of it. God speaking the universe into existence. And we've seen amongst his creations that he made a unique creation, the crown of his creation, a man and a woman, uh, to rule over this earth, to real, rule over this planet. But we've seen in recent weeks, in chapter 3, uh, we've seen those original parents of ours, Adam and Eve, we've seen them listen to the voice of that ancient serpent, Satan, right? And as he tempted them, they caved, they gave in, they gave in to the, the temptation towards sin and rebelled against our creator. And we've seen most recently as we ended chapter 3, we've seen God expel them from the Garden of Eden. Right? and put flaming swords and angels there to guard them from coming back to eat of that tree of life. But amidst all of that, in the midst of their rebellion against God, we also heard God give a promise uh, that he would someday send a seed of the woman, someday send a descendant of hers who would crush the head of that serpent. And they didn't know when the timing of it would be. They didn't know if it'd be their next generation or if it'd be far down the road as it ended up being. Uh, but we're going to see, as we turn the page now to Genesis chapter 4, we're going to see how this story continues to unfold outside of Eden. Um, now that they've been sent out of it, what is life like? And especially we're going to see in the story of Cain some dark edges to it, dark parts to what life outside the Garden of Eden was like. And so I'm going to read this. Uh, this is, we don't know when this took place. We don't know what sort of time elapsed uh, between the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. It could have been short. It could have been long. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but the story picks back up and the narrator is going to give attention to Cain and we're going to hear this somber echo uh, of what happened with Adam and Eve. There's going to be echoes of it that go into darker, deeper places in the life of Cain. So I'm going to read this text. Uh, I've been trying to do the practice the last few times I've preached. At the end of reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you all will say, thanks be to God, if you believe that. Thanks be to God. So let me read this, Genesis 4, 1 through 16. So Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continues this way. Now Adam knew his wife, or knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of, the, of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had a regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, 
Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to summarize uh, the message from this text this way, and then we'll walk back through it. Uh, This is what I'd like for you to walk away with hearing and seeing in this story, is that sin cannot be ruled apart from the Spirit, and sinners cannot be pardoned apart from the Son. That sin cannot be ruled apart from the Spirit. We're going to see that in Cain's life. But we're also going to see in this story that sinners cannot be pardoned apart from the Son of God, the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to walk through this text essentially in two sections, roughly in half. The first eight verses and the second eight verses. And the, the first section is going to, we're going to look at the power of sin in Cain's life and in our life, the power of sin. And the second half, we're going to see the pardon of sinners, uh, how that can take place, the need for it and God's provision for it. And so uh, this first half, I want us to, to really see, and it's a powerful story and perhaps the most powerful story in all of Scripture to embody this, the power of sin, uh, how strong it is, how deep of a grip that it has on us as human beings. So I want to explain some of what was happening here and show you some things in the text. So this story is, it's like a somber echo of Adam and Eve. Uh, They had fallen into sin and Cain is going to follow suit, right? And it it vividly, I think, shows the weakening resolve of human beings, uh, that that our resistance to sin is is weaker than we like to think. And it it also shows the growing power of sin, that it's stronger than than we like to think. And so... The, the setting is a little bit different for Cain and his brother Abel than it was for Adam and Eve, right? There's some differences between them. Adam and Eve had been created directly by God, right? Uh, uh, Adam by uh, forming from the dust of the ground and then Eve from the rib of Adam. Uh, they had been created by God in a sinless state, right? They weren't created as sinners. They were created without sin. Uh, but Cain and Abel, we see right off the bat, they were conceived right, by two sinners. It was with the help of the Lord. Eve acknowledges that, and I'm grateful for that. There's something miraculous to this day and always will be about the conception of a child that comes from the hand of the Lord, even though there's biological process involved. 
And so Adam knows Eve. It's this fitting euphemism, right, for them being intimate together. And two sons are born in due time. But there's a key difference here as well is that uh, Adam and Eve were born sinless, but these sons are born sinful. They're born sinners, just like the rest of humanity that has followed since, right? They are born outside of Eden, right? They're, they're born outside of the garden, and their condition is dramatically different in that regard from their parents. We don't know how old they were. When this story unfolds, we don't know how close in age they were. Uh, we don't know if there's, I'm guessing actually that there's probably been many other siblings by this point in time based on Cain's fear of some other people uh, that he has to be afraid of. Uh, but we don't know a lot of things, but we do note that they have different occupations, right? Uh, that, that Cain is more like a farmer uh, and then Abel is more like a rancher. Like Cain is taking care of the, the crops, Abel is taking care of the animals. And so as the story unfolds, uh, another difference, an echo of Adam and Eve, but slightly different, is the location of their temptation. And what I mean by that is that for Adam and Eve, the source of their temptation was outside of themselves, right? A serpent from outside had to come into the garden, had to come approach them. There was no source of temptation within them. It was outside of themselves, right? Uh, but for Cain, as we read this story, the temptation, the location of it, the origin of it seems to be within himself, right? It's from within him. The problem's not just out there, now it's in here. And the same is true for each and every one of us, that the source of temptation, the location of it is inside of ourselves, right? And we see this because both of the sons, they bring offerings to God, right? And praise God, God is still interacting with them. If I was reading this story and just read the end of Genesis 3, I would think God's done talking to them, uh, right? But they're still engaging with him. They bring these offerings to the Lord uh, from their respective spheres of responsibility. And we don't know exactly why. It's not directly stated, but God has regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God doesn't have regard, is how the text reads. And then what I want you to see here is that in verse 5, Cain was very angry and his face fell. There's something inside of him that is, is stirring up anger. His face is connected internally to himself, right? There's this internal temptation to anger, maybe toward God, maybe toward his brother, maybe toward both but in the, in the New Testament, I, I appreciate how this is described. James wrote in James 1.14, when he was talking about temptation of sinners like us and of Cain and Abel, he said that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, right? This is difference between Cain and Adam and Eve. There's something within him that is bent towards sin that was not true originally of Adam and Eve. So the location of temptation is different, but so too is, I would say, their disposition in temptation. Uh, Adam and Eve were born without sin, right? They, they weren't born with a bent towards sin, right? At, at worst, they were neutral, right? That, that they, had not, they didn't have a sin nature. They, they were neutral. They could choose a sin, but they didn't have to. Uh, and I heard one commentator say it this way. He was pointing out, Adam and Eve had to get talked into sinning. Cain, God was trying to talk unsuccessfully Cain out of sinning, right? His bent was towards sin. Like his temptation was away from obedience and toward sin. So there was this difference in him and in us than was the true of the original human beings. And in God's kindness, he comes to him, right? And 
even in the midst of temptation. Like with Adam and Eve, he kind of just waited till after they sinned and then comes and speaks, right? But even in the midst of temptation, he knows Cain is angry. He has seen his face fall. And even before he descends toward murder, God comes and talks to him, right? It's this merciful approaching of him saying, like, what are are you doing? Like, why is your face falling? Like, don't give into this, right? God is trying to talk him out of it, right? But Cain still rebels, right? Even with God speaking directly to him, appealing to him, don't do this. Don't go down this road. Don't let your anger control you. Don't let sin control you. Cain still rebels, And he tries to warn him. He tries to warn him of the subtlety of sin, right? He tries to warn him of the danger of sin, that it wants to rule over him, but that he's to rule over it. Cain's disposition is different, but so too, lastly, is his degree of temptation, right? Adam and Eve were tempted to eat of this forbidden fruit, Right? They were tempted, which is, was a severe wrong of them to do, to rebel against their creator, to, to go against his command, to distrust his wisdom, disobey his command. But this echo, this story, this true story of Cain goes into darker, deeper places, right? Where we've moved beyond just eating of some forbidden fruit to this temptation that was welling in his heart to strike his brother dead. Like the degree of temptation is getting ratcheted up, right? And this is precisely what Cain does. And I think we maybe are so familiar with this story that it loses its, its power. It loses its punch to us that one of these first human beings is struck dead by a fellow human being. Not by an animal, not even by some stranger, but by his very brother. Cain gives in to this temptation. He goes against the command of God. He, he gives in, he caves, right? But this isn't just a story about Cain, just for us to kind of put in our collective memory. Uh, it is a story about humanity. It is about Cain, but it shows us things about ourselves as sinful human beings. And I, I want to pause for a moment and just think, what does it teach us? What does it teach you about yourself and your fight against sin? Because when God speaks of sin in verse uh, 7, when he, he, it's like he personifies it, right? Sin is not a person. It's not a being. It doesn't actually talk or do things as a person does. But God speaks of it like that, right? It, it, like that it's crouching and that it, it, its desire is against you, Cain. It's like he personifies it. I was thinking of what could be similar. Maybe think of like a virus, or something. It's not a person. It's not like a virus is choosing, oh, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to take over this person's body. I'm going to do that. But it does it, right? It, it acts. It moves in a fire maybe the same way. But it, it, it's not making a choice, where am I going to spread? But it, it's a force. It's a power that is real and destructive. And God is saying sin is like that. For Cain, it's like that for you. It, it is not something to be trifled with. It is a powerful, powerful force. And when God says in verse 7 that it's crouching at the door, that's instructive to us, right? A crouching animal is, is one that doesn't want you to know it's there, right? That, that wants to kind of blend in and not have you be alerted to what it's about to try to do, right? And sin is like that in our life. It, it's there. We know it's never far from us, but often we're not attentive to it. it it's crouching, ready to strike, ready to take over, uh, but we don't perceive it as dangerous, 
right? We, we just think it's there, kind of it's, it's something to be aware of, but we don't see the danger of it. But God tells him in verse 7, its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is for you or against you. Like it, it wants to not help you, right? Not to help your life be better, help draw you closer to God. It wants to destroy you. That is what sin does. Its desire is contrary to you. It is against you. That is what sin does. Sometimes we think of sin as some sort of domesticated house pet, right? Instead of the predator that it is. Like that it is crouching. It is ready to destroy you. And you are a fool if you think you are stronger than it. And that it is not dangerous to you. God was trying to convince Cain of the reality of this. And Cain doesn't listen. And you see what happens, right? So I just, one thing I would encourage you to think is what sin in your life have you just been toying around with? Have you been tolerating as like a pet that you know it's bad, you know it could go wrong, but you're assuming it never will? Is think about how that sin may be crouching, ready to pounce on you, ready to take you into deeper levels of sin. I don't think Cain was planning to murder his brother initially, right? But sin was crouching and it gets a hold of him and takes him to places that he never intended to go. John Owen famously wrote to, as a command to be killing sin or it will be killing you. One or the other. Uh, if we just try to tolerate it, it will kill us. It will take over us. That is what it does by nature. But like Cain, we are also, I think, commanded by God to rule over sin. We are, we are part, sin has now become part of our world. It's become part of this world that we're to rule over, that we're to reign over, and we are to rule over it. Like we are to have control over it, not let it control us, right? But I think we often flatter ourselves when we think of our strength in comparison to the strength of sin. Like we think we're stronger, we're wiser, we can foresee how things will go wrong. I would never do these things. But I think we would be wise to see ourselves like Cain, uh, to know that we are weak just like him. He's not an exception. He's not an anomaly. We all are weak in the face of sin. Uh, We all uh, have vulnerabilities and a powerlessness against sin. And it should make us think, what resource do I have? (laughs) How can I come against this if Cain, having God himself talk to him and appeal to him, he still gives in and descends into murder Like, what recourse do I have? What tools do I have to try to combat sin in my life? I took time this week thinking just, what are ways we typically try to combat sin that are ultimately weak and powerless in the face of sin, right? There's a bunch of them, right? When we have sin in our life, sometimes we just try to throw law and rules at it, right? As if, if I just get these rules in my head and in my heart and just set them up, uh, that that'll help me, that will get me over the hump in the fight against sin. The Israelites, as the story unfolds, they were given the law of God from God and still descended into darkness of sin, right? Law doesn't keep us from sin. Rules don't keep us from sin. Logic doesn't keep us from sin right? God's using logic with him. He's saying uh, it, it, it's, its desire is for you. Like if you don't rule over it, certain things are going to happen. Like he's trying to draw lines of logic, connect dots, and that doesn't work. And that doesn't work for us either. We don't logic ourselves into obedience, right? Our consciences don't even restrain us and help us resist sin, right? Uh, 
Cain somehow, I think, knew murder is wrong. There's something innate in him, a conscience that God had given to him and that we possess as well. And we hear it and we listen to it, but even the conscience itself is not powerful enough to enable us to resist sin. It's enough to help us know it's wrong, but not to overcome it and not to resist it, right? The threat of consequence doesn't help us resist sin, right? It doesn't help us rule over sin. Some many, how many times in your life you know the consequence that's coming and you still do it, right? Cain, I think, knew the consequence that would come or at least had a hint of it, right? Uh, but he still does it. Willpower doesn't help us conquer sin. It doesn't help us rule over sin. Nothing helps us to rule over sin. Everything falls, uh, is weak in comparison to the power of sin. Anything we try to throw at it in our own power or tools we try to use don't work. Quitter's day comes like clockwork, right? In our resistance against sin. We will, if we're just resorting to these things, give up. Like we will be overcome by sin. It's desires for us. The scriptures speak of us as slaves to sin, right? Not as neutral, not as like kind of frenemies, as slaves to it. Like it controls us. And we can pretend like it doesn't, but it does. And if we are going to overcome the power of sin, if you're going to overcome the power of sin, we need something more than what Cain had, right? We need something more than law, We need something more than a conscience. We need something more than a threat of consequence. We need more than these things. We need changed hearts. But even more than that, we need the Spirit of God to live within us if we're going to adequately, strongly resist the pull of sin in our life. And praise God, that is precisely what Jesus purchased for us at the cross. He didn't merely, we'll talk about this in a minute, he didn't merely purchase pardon for us, he did, and that is glorious, (laughs) hallelujah. But he also purchased us in his suffering at the cross, he purchased us the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what is fundamentally different as Jesus raises from the dead and has ascended to heaven is now he doesn't just give us law to follow, but he gives us the spirit of God within us to make us want to follow, to help us see the ugliness of sin for what it is and to have a better impulse, a stronger, deeper desire to actually obey and live righteously than we've ever had before. And that, if you are a Christian, if you're trusting Christ, God has given you his spirit within you. You are not powerless against sin. No single person in this room who's indwelt by the Spirit of God is powerless against sin. You have the very power of the third person of the Trinity within you to help you overcome the deepest of temptations, the strongest of temptations. So sin cannot, see in the story of Cain, see in your own life, sin cannot be ruled apart from the power of the Spirit, apart from the presence of the Spirit of God in a person's life. And there's much that could be said about what that looks like, how that looks like. That's another sermon for another day. But I, w- I would encourage you to contemplate that. How can I grow in my sensitivity to the Spirit, my, my engagement with Him, let Him actually change me and stop trying to just fight against sin in your own power, in your own wisdom and just throwing law at yourself and and power and try to just muster it up within yourself but let the spirit of God work within you if you do not you will live like Cain you may not descend into murder but you will fall victim to sin it will stay a slave master over you until you live by the power of the spirit of God
And that's not to say we don't put effort in, right? I think even in verse one, how there's this beautiful thing in the conception of a child, there's human effort and there's divine work. That's the same in sanctification, right? That, that we have to do work to grow in sin, but if the spirit of God's not in us helping us, we will never succeed. Uh, but we must put work in to grow, but the spirit of God has to be behind that and underneath it to help us overcome. Much more could be said about this, but I need to move to the second half of the text. Uh, I want to talk in the second half of this text after this horrible descent to murder. I want you to see a few things in God's engagement with Cain that help us see something about the pardon of sinners, uh, that it's actually needed, but that it's, it can be granted and is granted to us as well. Uh, we need more than just power over sin. We need pardon for it right? We need both of those things. And verses 9 to 16 give us at least a hint of the provision of pardon for sin, right? There's, as uh, this story that's kind of post-murder, the fallout from it, verse 9 and following, it's still more like echoes of what happened with Adam and Eve, right? There's some similarities. Like God comes to him, right? After the sin, he, just like he did with Adam and Eve, he comes asking questions, Right, that giving kindly this opportunity to confess, this opportunity to repent, right? But what a key difference between Adam and Eve and then their son here, Cain, is that uh, Cain, like, well, I'll say it this way Adam and Eve, they descended into blaming each other, right? Well, this woman you gave me, the serpent, like all this sort of nonsense, they were shifting blame, but they did not have the audacity to deny what they had done, right? They were hiding. They were scared. Like they, they were hiding from God. They didn't even try to deny it. But what does Cain do when God comes and talks to him? He denies it, right? God asks him, where is your brother, and what's the first thing out of his mouth isn't, I'm sorry, like you found me out. He says, I don't know, right? So it's this descent away from just shame towards denial uh, that we sometimes stoop to as well, that we deny that we've ever sinned at all. And how foolish are we? How foolish am I? How foolish are you to ever think, like Cain was thinking here, that we can pull one by God, Right? You cannot, and you are a fool if you try to. God sees all, he knows all. But another difference is Adam and Eve, if you read Genesis 3, they accepted their punishment, I think, right? When God starts talking to them and speaks to the serpent and pronounces judgment on him and speaks to the woman and pronounces judgment on her and speaks to Adam and pronounces judgment on him, guess what? You don't hear them talk, right? They are silent. That they don't speak back, at least in the record, to God saying, but, 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 no, no, no. Like they, they receive this judgment as right, I think, from God, even though it was difficult for them. Not so with Cain, right? Right after verse 9, after he says, I don't know where he is, he asks this question like almost to God, like, why are you even asking me? Like, am I my brother's keeper? Like, why are you, it's like a clap back at God. Like, who do, like, why are you coming to ask me about him? He's challenging God. And then when God pronounces this judgment on him about him being cursed from the ground and him being a wanderer and a fugitive, what does, God, what does Cain do in verse 13? It's like he starts to complain about it. 
right? Like, my pun- this punishment is greater than I can bear, God. Like, is this really fair? Like, how's this going to work out for me? Like, it's, it's like he's challenging God's right to do this and the, the extent of the judgment that he's laying down on him. One commentator said that under the weight of this curse, Cain goes to pieces, though not in remorse. It's like he's starting to see the dominoes fall and how bad his life is about to become and he does not like it. And ironically, the one who just murdered his brother is now concerned somebody's going to murder him, right? Like, I'll play, but I don't want to pay, right? It's it's just descent into self-centeredness and denial and challenge back at the very God that he has wronged and a lack of concern at all for his brother he just killed, right? It's just this descent down. But I think Cain, he very evidently had a fear of fellow human beings, right? Uh, That there's going to be these people who come and now kill him out of vengeance or out of frustration uh, for, for his taking of the life of Abel. He's fearful of other people. But what I think should have been registering in Cain's mind and should be registering in any of our minds is that he should have had a fear of God, Right? A fear of God's judgment, of what, how God views him, of what God will do with him. Not just in this life, but post this life. Right? He, he should have had a concern for that. And there's a hint, a glimmer that maybe he did care a bit. In verse 14, right? as he's kind of bemoaning this judgment that God is laying down, he says, Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground. And then one of the things he says is, And from your face I shall be hidden. Like, that at least is weighing heavy on him, right? Like, your face is going to be hidden from me. I'm no longer going to be around you. But he doesn't seem anywhere else in this text to really care very much of what God thinks or to submit himself under the authority of God. But there is one note that struck earlier on in this story that I think is important that I would have hoped just rung in Cain's ear, but I hope it rings in yours. And it's at the end of verse 10. And I want you to hear what God says to him. Because remember, Cain is afraid of other people, right? Because of what he did and consequence that may come to him. But hear what God says. He says in verse 10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel was a creature made in the image of God, Right? And the blood of Abel that had gone down into the ground, it's personified here too. It's not just crying out to other relatives who are going to come have vengeance on Cain. It is crying out first and foremost and most importantly to God as the one who created him, right? He is the one that every human being is accountable to, not just people on this planet. Our sin is against each other, but it is even before that and more fundamentally than that, it is against God. Whether murder or lust, or deceit, or jealousy, whatever the sin, it is first and foremost a rebellion against our creator. And we see in this story two commitments of God, which we should praise him for, a commitment to justice and a commitment to mercy, right? God doesn't just kind of wink at this sin and say, oh, no big deal, Cain. Like, just try not to do that again. Don't, don't kill anybody else, right? There's a seriousness, a weight to what just took place here. God is saying, his blood is crying out to me. There must be an accounting for this, right? This, the sin can't just keep uh, happening and have no consequence, right? We're going to see, this story is confounding to me, if I'm honest, that God 
shows mercy to Cain because you know what happens in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood when Noah gets off the ark one of the things that God says to him I think this will be on the screen he says to Noah whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image God says that later on in this story. The human life is so precious that when it is taken by someone that rightfully it should be taken from that person who took it, right? That's how much God cares about human life and we'll get to that text when we get there. But you see God's sense of justice. Like he, he doesn't just let this murder happen and not address it. He brings severe judgment upon Cain, right? He says, now you are cursed. He didn't even say that to Adam. He says, you are cursed from the ground like it's not going to yield its its fruitfulness to you anymore and he says you're going to be a wanderer and a fugitive there's these huge consequences that come for his sin and lest any of us in this room think yeah Cain is a murderer like he deserves this like he deserves God's judgment I want you to hear the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and if this doesn't convict you and help you see yourself in solidarity with Cain I don't know what will Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He said, you've heard it said that it, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, he's quoting from the Ten Commandments, and that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's still talking human speaking, right? But whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That is Jesus speaking. That's not some fire and brimstone Southern Baptist preacher who just has a a rail against sibling rivalry. This is Jesus trying to help us see, help you see, help me see, that deep within our heart we have this same bent as Cain. We are murderers. Like We kill people with our words. We cut each other down, and it's not a small deal. Like God is a just God who doesn't just look at our sin and say, oh, no, no problem, it's all good, let's, let's just move on. Like there's judgment that must come from a holy God, right? We don't need as sinners just protection from fellow sinners, right? We, we don't just need God to look out for us on a human level, we need pardon from God himself, right? Cain is so concerned with protection from fellow humans that it's like he's forgetting, I need God's pardon. Like, I need his forgiveness because in slaying my brother, I just defied him. I just cut down his image, right? And God, he's demonstrated, uh, he's demonstrating his commitment to justice, but in this story, you also see his commitment to mercy. Because even though he hates murder, he, he says murderers will be judged, right? He also shows mercy to Cain, right? He doesn't minimize or excuse Cain's sin, but he provides this mysterious mark upon him, right? And I don't know what that mark was, but in verse 15, you see the Lord put a mark on him. Maybe it was some sort of tattoo or something. I don't know. We could speculate, but he's clearly putting something upon this man so that as he goes out into the world, people will know intrinsically, don't touch him. Do not bring vengeance to bear upon him. Do not cut him down like he cut his brother down. And so God shows mercy to him, right? He didn't have to. He didn't owe that to him, but he shows mercy to him in protecting him from others. And God continues in this story, 
we, we see as the story continues, we see his commitment to justice and mercy linger, right, and grow even. He, he doesn't ever dissipate in his justice and he doesn't grow soft in his provision of mercy, but both are upheld and it's confusing to us. How can it be? How can you be just and take sin seriously, God, and show mercy to sinners? How can that be? It doesn't make sense in our mind until you step foot at the foot of the cross, right? That is where these make sense and where the storyline of the Bible comes together, where you see God's care for justice, but his commitment to mercy. And I, I want to take the last couple minutes and just share this with you. That Jesus, as the scriptures unfold, is shown to be a better able. And this is what I mean by this. Jesus is shown to be a better Abel, because Abel doesn't speak much. He doesn't actually speak at all in this text, does he? His blood speaks. He doesn't. It's, it's more about Cain. But surprisingly, when you read the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, that author said that Jesus' blood, the blood of our Savior, he said, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I, I read through a Tim Keller sermon about that text, and he said it so well, I can't say it better. So I just wanted to quote how he unpacks that statement. He said this, talking about the story of Cain and Abel. He said, years later, another man showed up who was a lot like Abel because he came into a world, he came into a nation filled with Cain's, people who were religiously very observant, who were always bringing their offerings, honoring the sacrificial system, and yet hated his spirit, and they slew him. The, the book of Hebrews says when Jesus Christ shed his blood, an innocent victim of injustice, his blood cried out, but in a new way. And this is beautiful. I so appreciate the author of Hebrews picked up on this. Abel's blood, when it went into the ground, what was it crying out for? Justice, right? Like, this man was killed. Justice needs to be satisfied here. Like This life just cannot be taken and nothing happened if there's a holy God on the throne of the universe, right? His blood was crying out for justice. But Jesus' blood, when he was at the cross, his blood didn't just cry out for justice. It satisfied God's justice, Right? It satisfied it because what was happening was more than just him dying at the hands of soldiers and Pharisees and crowds. Like what was happening was God the Father was slaying him on behalf of sinners like us, right? Our sin was counted to him and Jesus bore all the wrath, all the judgment, all the anger of God that should have been coming down on us. Instead, it came down on Jesus. His wrath was satisfied, Right? And so when Jesus' blood goes into the ground, what is it crying out for now? Justice has been satisfied. What is the better word that it's speaking, that it's crying out for? It's for mercy, right? It's for grace to be shown to these people who is the reason I just died. God, don't vindicate my death by slaying them. Like, show your justice by showing mercy to them because I just died for them. I suffered everything that should have come down on them. Now show them mercy. Let my blood cry out for mercy to be shown to them, right? Jesus is the better able, right? He was this sinless sacrifice. He wasn't just a victim, right? He was a volunteer, right? 
who let himself be slain for us. His blood cries out for mercy. And I want to end by saying what this means for you. What this means for you, as we see Jesus as the better able, is that sinners like us, sinners like me and you, cannot be pardoned apart from the Son. You cannot, you will not ever receive pardon from the God you have wronged apart from bending your knee to Christ, of placing all your trust in him. You, you cannot, like Abel tried to do, plead not guilty to God, right? You cannot, you should never try to plead not guilty, but you can be declared not guilty by God right? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He suffered for you. He bore all the wrath, all the judgment that should have been yours. And the way that you receive his regard, the way that you can be regarded by him, is not by just bringing him better offerings, right? It's not by just showing your power over sin and now God will regard you, right? It's not by cleaning up your life and making yourself a better representative of God and now he'll regard me. The way you can be regarded by God today and for all eternity is by placing your trust in his crucified and resurrected son. That he suffered for your very rebellion, right? And he was raised from the dead and he is glad to share his eternal life with you. You, you do not need to bring better things to God to impress him. You cannot do that. Cain brought offerings to God, right? Abel brought offerings to God. The only reason Abel was regarded, Hebrews 11 says, because of his faith, right? He offered his offering in faith. And if we are going to be pardoned by God, it will be because of our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Not because of our faithfulness and our obedience to him, but our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And what joy and assurance that should bring to us, right? That we don't need to impress God, that we cannot impress God. But we who are rebels like Cain can be pardoned, right? We can be pardoned once and for all for our sin. We can be regarded by him now and forever. And so my prayer this morning is that this would be a quitter's day of sorts for you, uh, but a quitter's day of a different kind, right? I hope it's a quitter's day in the sense of that you quit trying with the first half of our sermon, that you quit trying to just overcome the power of sin in your own strength, that you quit trying to just fight it with willpower and logic and threat of consequence, but that you would quit trying to do that and live in the power of the Spirit. But secondly, for those that have not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, my prayer this morning for you has been that this would be a quitter's day for you that you would quit trying to honor God just on your own merit and gain his reward, gain his approval, gain his acceptance by your good deeds, but that you would abandon that effort, that you would quit it, and that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, his son, who was crucified for you and raised from the dead for you. So may this be a quitter's day of a better sort than this upcoming Friday, right? Uh, May we live in the power of the Spirit and know the pardon that comes through his son. Let me pray for us, and we're gonna sing a closing song. Father in heaven, what a sobering story. We, uh, as human beings, this is part of our story. This is not some foreign thing to us, some narrative that we cannot resonate with. But we know within our hearts the power of sin. May we not deny it. May we see it as the crouching threat that it is, looming, ready to strike and ready to control us. But may we rule over it by the power of your spirit. God, also may we know your pardon. May we experience it for the first time today or may we be renewed in our joy, uh, those who have already possessed it. May we know that pardon comes not by bringing offerings, 
not by cleaning ourselves up, but by the shed blood of your son, Jesus. May we cast, <clears throat> cast our hope upon him now and forever. Amen. Amen.